All right, so today, no PowerPoint today. We're gonna have some videos uh, in a little bit, so that's why the screen is down. Uh, the structure of today's, uh, this morning's lecture was uh, written by you all, and uh, here's what we'll be talking about. We're gonna begin with why it matters, then we're going to talk about embodiment in preaching, then we're going to look at some examples. One of the questions I was asked was, do you have some favorite examples of preachers who typify embodied preaching in a, in a particular way? Uh, we're going to talk about othered bodies, uh, and we're, we're particularly going to focus on uh, ones that you all asked about. Women, people with disabilities, uh, and sexual and gender minorities. We'll talk briefly about pain and trauma in the preacher, in the congregation, and then we will end with my favorite topic of all, self-care. <laughs> so, why it matters. One of you asked me this question, no, uh, <laughs> no big deal. Um, I'm just going to offer one answer. There are about, you know, 1,012 ways we could tackle that question. I'll just offer one, and I'll invite you to think of others. Your congregation are people in bodies. God loves them and encounters them in their bodies. Do they know that yet? Do they know that yet? Where does the church and your church stand in relation to child abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, mass incarceration, police brutality, white Supremacy, the separation of children from parents, poverty, access to health care, nutritious food, and clean water? Where does the church stand? And when I say stand, I don't mean a position paper. I mean, where is the church standing? What is the church doing? And these are matters of the body. If our preaching cannot or refuses to address these realities, we might as well leave it behind and find ourselves a better paying job. Embodiment in preaching. One of you asked, how do we stay embodied? while preaching, if we're wearing a robe that's covering your whole body? Great question. Our body is more than our shape, our sex traits, our skin, our hair, our clothes. Those are culturally freighted dimensions of our embodied existence in large part because those markers distinguish us from one another. They determine 
whether or not we conform to or violate cultural standards of beauty, status, normativity, and power. A robe does a few things. It aims in part to mask our bodily particularity, some of those marks of distinction, to draw attention away from the person of the preacher and toward God. But it also marks our bodies in a very specific way, and that is to mark our bodies as ones with power and authority, to mark us as mediators between God and people. That robe is doing something, too. That said, if you're wearing a robe, your embodiment is still present through your movement, posture, your facial features and expression, your breath. I want you to recognize that your voice is a bridge between bodies. A bridge between bodies. The synergy of our muscles, our vocal cords, throat, nasal cavities, palate, teeth, tongue, and breath or spirit generates and shapes vibrating waves that bounce off particles of matter in the physical space around you and in every body that hears you. Your capacity to shape those vocal sounds in the way that you do to form language, to convey meaningful inflections of pitch and tone, effective rhythms, pauses, runs, modulations. All of this is shaped by your reception of sound that has been generated within, projected from, and bounced off of other people's bodies. Sound itself is not matter, but is a pressure wave that moves through the medium and only through the medium of particulate matter. What we call our voices does not remain inside of our bodies. Our voices are pressure waves that enter and affect the bodies of those who hear us. And not only through our ears. I've been using these bone conduction headphones when I run. The sound enters my body through my cheekbones. I want to say a few other things that, we, uh, that we're learning about embodiment in the reception, in the reception of things that we hear um, from the rapidly changing field of neuroscience. We now know that all cognition is embodied cognition. Even if someone is listening to you on an audio recording with their eyes closed, their bodies are involved in the act of listening, comprehending, assimilating, and responding to your speaking. Scientists have learned, just to give one example we're thinking about for your preaching, scientists have learned that readers and hearers respond differently in their bodies to third-person narration and first-person narration. 
third person, he or she uh, did this, this happened to him or her. First person, I experienced this, I did this. And in the case of first person narration, by contrast with third person, they've learned from all the you know, MRI, fMRI imaging, they can do that the sensory motor cortex activates in our brains when we hear first person narration. And it doesn't do that in the same way when we hear third person narration. How interesting that you can actually measure and mark in the body how we are responding cognitively. It is also a motor response. We're responding as though our own bodies are performing those actions and it can prime us to perform actions. They've also shown that that activation creates a greater feeling, so they, you know, they combine the fMRI with the survey responses, creates a greater feeling of being transported into the world of the story. Someone asked, what is the role of emotion as a trigger for embodiment? Mustn't we touch intellect and emotion to generate an enfleshed response? Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, what is emotion? What is affect? So emotion kind of now comes under the umbrella of affect studies. Um, one expert, Margaret Wetherill, talks about affect. Uh, she says, we got a consensus now within science and among scholars working in these fields of psychology, psychiatry, and embodied affect, a dynamic interacting an assemblage of autonomic bodily responses, actions, subjective feelings, cognitive processing, the firing and projecting of neural circuitry. That's a, that use of circuitry we're beginning to understand kind of leads us in a, in a falsely mechanistic direction, but uh, the language is still used. And Verbal reports, communicative signals such as facial expressions, all of those things interacting, working together dynamically. She says an emotional episode such as a burst of anger uh, or grief integrates and brings together all of these things in the same moment. Scholars note that emotions arise when we judge an event to be relevant I know we don't love that word, but to be relevant to our needs, our goals, our values, and our well-being. These are the kinds of things, if we judge them to be salient to one of those things, we are likely to have an emotional response. And those emotions motivate us. They produce what is called action readiness action readiness. Scholars also note that emotions engage the whole person. They exert, quote, considerable power in relation to behavior and experience. If emotion primes people for action, if it exerts considerable power over behavior and experience, and we want preaching in part to motivate faithful 
praxis and mediate an encounter with God, then we would do well to reckon with the role that emotion, ours and our congregants, plays in our preaching. Okay, I was asked, do you have examples of favorites? I do have favorites of preachers who typify embodied prophecy was the question. So I picked three, and I think they each in, in these examples are illustrating something quite a bit different. Okay, so um, these are all preachers that I have uh, been able to experience in person and, uh, and who have uh, impacted uh, my own preaching in, uh, in a variety of ways. So Michael Curry, uh, if you didn't know who he was, uh, you know, a month ago, you do now. Um, this is, uh, I first heard him preach maybe 15 years ago, and he was just, he was just everywhere. And I had never seen anything like it. Oh, my goodness. Um, so in this clip I'm going to show you, um, I need to, let's see, we're going to make that big. In this clip I'm going to show you Curry's playful movement his energy and sort of light musicality convey the joy of God and the joy of life with God. When he rustles his hair, you're gonna see him do this. It's a gesture of self-intimacy that invites, it invites the audience to travel back with him in time into his memory, his childhood, the people and communities and traditions that he carries within him, and he marks that with a bodily gesture. Bending and gripping, you'll see, conveys the vibrant, pursuing desire that God has for God's people as God reaches out to take hold of us. The openness of his posture and gesture, the ground he covers as he circles around in front of the congregation, the way he turns and orients his body to each side and corner of the church. These all enact the orientation and scope and outward action of missional evangelism which is what he's preaching on. So let's just watch uh, this clip. We're going to watch almost two minutes because I want you to see each of those moves. Yes, Sally. This is, um, this is in Texas. Here, let me, pull, let me escape it a second. It's an Episcopalian um, Eucharistic service for the Evangelism Matters Conference. Um, at Church of the Transfiguration in Dallas, Texas, 2016. Yep. Okay. When you do this, the mission you engage in will not be your own. When you do this, you will do more than you ever thought or dreamed you could do because it will be me working through you when you do this. You can change the world. So love the Lord your God. 
love your neighbor just like me and change the world. I had a song that captures evangelism. It might be this one. The old slaves used to say it this way. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my life's in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. But then the next verse, and this is evangelism for the Episcopal Church, it goes on and says it this way. If you cannot preach like Peter, <laughs> all right, and you cannot pray like Paul, you just tell the love of Jesus, how he died to save us all. Oh, there is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There, there is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Oh, my brothers and sisters, just tell them about love. Tell them about the love of God in Jesus. Tell them about the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Tell them about the love of God that will never, ever let us go. Okay, Bishop. Whew, that gives me chills. All right, the next clip we're going to look at. Teresa Fry Brown. Embodied preaching is not always about gesture and movement. Okay. When I watch this clip, I want more eye contact. I want more physical energy, and she's not giving it to me on purpose. She is withholding. She is performing in her delivery a denial it's an effective denial through rhythm, speed, and detachment. You'll see her do, you know, kind of this with her hand every now and then. This detachment conveys what we are losing when we do not ground our work and our hope in God. When we do not rest in God. She becomes an automotive locomotive that is going, 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 going nowhere. Her delivery matches not simply the words she's speaking, but the reality that she is evoking. The effect her delivery creates is meant to be received as a warning. So let's, let's see and hear this in action. Souls will not be saved, and sinners will not be converted, lost will not be found, the blind will not see, the deaf will not hear, the disabled will not walk, the forces will never speak, the sick will not get well, the enslaved will not be set free, wars will not cease, governments will not have integrity, nations will not be united, unemployed will not get jobs, children will not be saved, will not be educated, elders will not be respected, heritage will not be remembered, prayers will not have purpose, songs will not be Churches will not be filled, will not be expressed, peace will not be attained, dreams will not be actualized, lives will not be changed, believers will not see God's face, the faithful will not be received, and heaven will never be our home. God's 
I am the hope that you need to get through. That's right. God says, I know. So do you notice what she did there with that? Withholding. Okay. One more example. Reverend William Barber. You won't see the preacher's body in this clip. I did see him deliver this sermon. Um, one thing, if, if you know or don't know Reverend Barber, he often is uh, using a cane. A couple of you asked about, you know, can, can a disabled body preach? Or what do we have to say about that? Um, so I just mentioned that, and we're going to come back to that topic. Um, but what I really remember from this event was that Barbara was surrounded by people. Surrounded by people. The occasion for this sermon was the 2014 HK on J, historic thousands on Jones Street in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. This was a march. It is a coalition movement begun by the North Carolina NAACP that united with other community activists in North Carolina to seek justice for people of color, for women, teachers, the poor, sexual and gender minorities at a time when we had a legislature that was doing everything it possibly could to cut funding to programs to, um, to disenfranchise voters of color and poor voters. And during this uh, public sermon, the preaching is, it is surely embodied in Barber's body. But what you will see is how it is also embodied in every person who is marching. And some of them are dancing, and some of them are running. So I love this example because it brings to life what it means when we say that those who hear and experience this preaching event with you are also embodying your preaching. And I want to say this, too. Uh, we, know, we know that memory is held in our bodies very often. Uh, you try to remember something, and you can't remember it until suddenly you're in this place, or you touch an object, or you see someone's face, and it's all flooding back to you, right? That our memory is held in our bodies and in places and in people. When, when I was reviewing this clip as I was preparing it for today, I just, the tears welled up. I couldn't stop crying because I was feeling all the pain that we felt and all the anger that we felt at that time and also the, the relief that we felt in the solidarity, in the idea that we could be doing something, right? All of that is held in our bodies. Okay, so, Barber. And Can I be a preacher for a minute? Oh, help me, Lord. Yeah, every now and then, when I'm blessed to be in the vision and the stratosphere of the spirit, every now and then, 
when God lets my mind and my soul go a little bit higher than the troubles of this world, when I'm up there in the spirit, I'm reminded that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. When I'm up there, I'm reminded if we help the poor and stop exploitation, Isaiah said, the Lord will hear our prayers, the light will shine on us, and we'll be repairers of the breach. When I'm up there in the spirit, in my spirit, I hear the Lord say, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, mount up on wings as eagles. When I'm up there, I'm reminded that if God be for you, it does not matter if the whole world is against you. When I'm up there in my spirit, I'm reminded greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. When I'm up there, somebody say up there, I'm reminded the Lord is my light, my salvation. God can pick you up. He can turn you around. He can plant your feet on higher ground. When I'm up there, I'm reminded weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Every battle for justice has gone through the night, but joy always came in the morning after slavery. Joy came in the morning when women didn't have the right to vote. Joy came in the morning after segregation. So, examples of embodied preaching all around us. I was asked about women prophets, women preachers. Where are the women? Someone asked me. And Vicki had an answer. She began with a question, what about the female prophets? And then she just offered, offered some great answers. Miriam, her leprosy. Mary Magdalene, anointing oil on the Christ. Esther, Mary, mother of Jesus. Are they not prophets by your definition? Mediating the divine? Yeah. Someone else asked, what does embodied prophecy mean for women? It's new and interesting when men make their bodies vulnerable for God or their community, but women do this all the time. Childbirth, one example. How does Deborah's prophetic work fit in here? Someone else said, the bodies of women and people of color have always been viewed as a threat. The church doesn't know what to do with them. So women prophets. I love that Vicki named examples of women who aren't all called prophets. 
and instead recognize that they are doing this work of mediation in their bodies, in their actions. Mary Magdalene does the very thing that Frank Cross says prophets do. She anoints a king, not just any king, the king. Mary receives the word incarnate into her womb, and from her body the word issues forth into the world to save us all. There are also five women named prophets in the Old Testament, Miriam, Huldah, Deborah, a woman whose name we don't know, but we know that she was uh, intimately connected to Isaiah, and Noadia. The narratives about these women prophets are sparser. Isaiah's wife isn't even named. And we have no prophetic books attributed to a woman prophet. It's widely believed that the tradents who shaped and handed on the books of the Old Testament were largely men, and that the selection of texts and the perspectives in those texts reflect male experience and male points of view far more often than those of women or gender minorities. But the stories of these women prophets still assert their place within Israel's story. Miriam is called a prophet when she leads the women of Israel in song and percussion and dance to celebrate God's liberation and victory. Her leprosy attests to the marking and the exclusion of the bodies of those who are deemed to be less authoritative within our faith communities. She has experienced that marking and exclusion that many experience today because she dared to say, doesn't God speak through me also? Deborah's prophecy manifests in military leadership, judgeship. She declares her herself a mother in Israel. And in her prophetic song, she calls out the tribes of Israel. She calls them to account, holds them responsible. She calls Israel itself into being through her singing. Hold a high priest. King and Chancellor consult Hulda for her expertise, and she calls a nation to repent. Isaiah's wife gives birth to a child who will be a sign for Israel's future, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, not a welcome sign. She didn't, she didn't go the, the fast track to popularity, but she delivered that prophecy with her body. Nehemiah vilifies Noadia. We don't know much about her. We know that he thought she was someone who was trying to make him afraid, and he didn't like it. Women's prophetic ministry makes its way through these cracks. Their persistent presence against the odds invites us to reckon with the gender disparities that remain in church leadership and among preachers today. 
Can we reckon with the obstacles that still, I promise you, still face women in ministry, women as preachers? Male preachers, how are you supporting women preachers in your church, your congregation, your conference? What more can you be doing? Ability, disability. Some questions were, in the discussion of embodiment, how might we be mindful of differently abled bodies? And what if your body is broken? Will it still preach? Preaching with a marginalized body. In recent years, there's been a move within disability studies to shift our thinking and our practices from, away from a biological or a medical model that views disability as a problem or a lack, a defect or deficiency within a person's body, to a social model that recognizes that the difference between what we call ability and what we choose to call disability is often located in the environment, in prejudice, in social structures and systems, in access or lack thereof to resources and technologies. And just to give one example to kind of help relativize and, and get us past this, this biological model texturize that a little bit. Um, it's often noted that in the ancient world, a huge percentage of the population would have been vision impaired to a degree that they would have been considered blind due to the lack of assistive vision technologies that are readily available to a large portion of the world's population today. How many people in this room would not be allowed to drive without corrective lenses? Okay, so your social context makes it possible for, in that regard at least, you to not be functionally disabled, right? You are, you are able to perform that test that for many of us feels like, you know, that's that's vital to our being able to function in the world. And yet that is context dependent. And I want us to keep that in mind as we consider our worship spaces. Not that specific example, but that, that broader idea. Our worship spaces, our worship materials, how we deliver the content of our sermons, our classes, and so on. Now, to come back to this question, what if your body is broken, will it still preach? You may recall that Moses protested his calling by highlighting his own speech impediment. Another disabled prophet in his book, Disability and Isaiah's Suffering Servant, Jeremy Skipper, argues that the language that describes the suffering servant and the shame he experiences is consistent with language we see elsewhere in ancient Near Eastern and biblical literature that is used to describe people 
who are considered uh, to belong to the categories that described disability. And that the shame that is described in that passage is consistent with what is known about the social shame that was associated with those disabilities. And he advances the theory that the servant prophet, and specifically, uh, he's uh, focusing on the poem in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. This is the one we all know. Uh, he went like a lamb to the slaughter. This is the one that is so often applied to Jesus. Uh, this servant prophet was a disabled person from whom people averted their gaze, hid their faces, who was marginalized, despised, and abused for his perceived physical deformities, and yet who conveyed light and knowledge, interceded for sinners, and even bore their sins. And the writers of the book of Daniel, to give an example of, of uh, some in a later period who saw in that servant a model for their ministry, they identified themselves with this suffering servant. They believed that their public preaching, teaching, and witness unto death would, like this servant's witness, make many righteous. Now, would I ask disabled, broken, or wounded preachers to bear the sins of their people or to volunteer for abuse and martyrdom? No. Isaiah's servant poem testifies against stereotypes, assumptions, prejudgments, social exclusions, and it testifies against abuse. It testifies to the light and knowledge and embodied testimony that the servant declares to nations and kings. And it testifies that God will lift up the servant. Another passage in Isaiah says this. Does the clay say to the one who fashions it, what are you making? This jug has no handles. This passage pushes against other passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah that seem to imagine that disabled bodies can only be whole when the disability is repaired or removed, and instead calls our attention to the artistry of God in designing each person as they are. To put a different spin on the question of whether a disabled or broken body is able to preach, let's flip the question and ask what distinctive gifts and perspectives do differently abled persons bring to the practice of preaching? And to give just one example, if you've ever seen a, a sermon preached in American Sign Language, you know that this is a language that uses facial expression, bodily posture, movement, and gesture in a way far more effective than what I typically see in oral uh, English language preaching. Yes? Yeah. 
Foo Colts. All signing. Yeah. Um, Great, thank you. All right, gender and sexual minorities. One of you asked, um, there were sort of two questions that I chose to take together because I thought um, pairing them uh, worked really well. It was intriguing to me. Uh, the first was, how does God's embodiment fit our cosmology? How does it fit our cosmology? The second question, how can understanding God's body help proclamation of the word with, to, for, trans bodies, queer bodies, brown bodies, disabled bodies. Vicki offered us as an example of a prophetic interpreter, the eunuch, who challenges Philip in the interpretation of scripture, of prophecy. Someone else asked a different question, kind of coming from a different direction. I'm confused about the connection between uh, what I mentioned on Monday, a legacy of heterosexism and a good biblical understanding of the body when homosexual practice rejects the design of the body in preference to a felt reality. And then what I took to be a follow-up uh, observation and question. It seems that some modern preachers, in an attempt to be prophetic, will preference the body to the word, even to the point of proclaiming personal preference over and ahead of the text we've received. What practices do you recommend to help us keep from transgressing the reception process? So a question coming from a different perspective. Here's where I want to start. We've learned that in our society today, black and brown bodies and queer, gay, lesbian, and trans bodies and bi bodies bear an incredible burden from prejudice and hatred. The experience of discrimination the experience of other people's hatred being projected at you has been shown to correlate with and is believed to be a contributing cause in many cases of high blood pressure, anxiety disorder, clinical depression, heart disease, and even cancer. Our hatred causes cancer. Rates of suicide and attempted suicide and suicidal ideation for LGBTQ youth far, far outpace those of cisgender heterosexual youth. Trans people frequently experience not only discrimination and vilification by others, but for many, a devastating gender dysphoria in which the features and the shape of their own body 
may cause anguish, self-disgust, cognitive dissonance, depression, and anxiety. We know scientifically and sociologically that sexual and gender identities are complex. It would be tempting to look at that line in Genesis, the Lord created them male and female, and think that that provides us with a very tidy way to keep track of all human beings. But do you know, just from a chromosomal perspective, if you took every person on the planet with Klinefelter syndrome and Turner syndrome, these are people who uh, we would medically refer to as intersex due to chromosomal variations, you could fill the nation, you could replace the population of Uruguay. That's a lot of people. And male over here and female over here, that's not a good explanation of the shape of our race, our species. It's a merism. It's what we call a literary device. And in Genesis 1, it's all over the place. God created heavens and earth. But in that same story, God also created the seas. God differentiated between night and day, but there was also that wonderful time called dawn and dusk. This literary device of merism identifies the most obvious points on a spectrum in order to encompass everything on that spectrum. If I tell you I searched high and I searched low, but by golly, my keys were on the counter the whole time. I never found them. No, you know I looked on the counter because it was right there. I meant that when I said high and low. We don't really have time to go into how we would interpret the many biblical texts that are often uh, quoted, used in debates and discussions about sexuality and gender among Christians. But I want to say that the biblical testimony, it is more complex. It is more complex than the impression given by many of our translations and interpretations. Translation is always interpretation, and a translation always has to make a choice, a set of choices. This could mean, oh, maybe like four different things here. I gotta pick one, because when I move from this language to that language, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. I can't replicate exactly what those words are doing in the origin language. I would love for us to be curious about these texts. Can we be curious about what they meant in their ancient context and what they mean for us today, rather than dogmatic, rather than assuming that we know 
exactly what they were trying to say and what they mean for us today. I would also want us to ask whether Revelation stops with the biblical text or whether God continues to disclose God's self and God's will in ways that are accessible to us through reason, through science, through the diverse witness of tradition, through human experience. Luke Powery asserts that bodies may be viewed as sacred sermonic texts in and of themselves. And I believe this is true not only of cisgender and heteronormate bodies, but also of LGBTQ bodies. And I hope we will take that seriously in our preaching. Pain and trauma. Someone shared that the morning check-in with our bodies has been challenging for me. I have chronic pain. And connecting to that pain makes my day a challenge. I'd sooner ignore and put the pain aside. My question is, how do we carry and embody the message when the message our body gives us is painful? Lisa said, Jeremiah prophesies from the site of his injury. Henry Nowen also says this in The Wounded Healer. How do we lead from our scars when many of our bodies don't have one gaping wound, but hundreds of cuts that have disfigured us. That's a big topic. I'm going to say just a little bit. As a preacher, pain and woundedness are not our enemy. We must pay attention to pain. Pain is a signal designed to tell us that something is wrong. Preachers need to be able to name when something is wrong. And I can guarantee you that on any given Sunday, people in your congregation are suffering physical, emotional, existential pain and trauma that they are struggling to cope with. Their emotional pain manifests in and resides in their bodies. Your preaching can meet them in that pain. Sometimes we have to preach out of the depths and lay it at God's feet. We even have to preach the anger. But please do not ignore what your body is revealing to you. Please seek the help and care and support and space that you need. Know that you too deserve healing health and wholeness. And this brings me to our last topic, self-care. I was asked in the hallway, are you going to talk about care for the body? And I said, oh, yes. Someone else asked, how does our obsession with our bodies, especially how they look, interact with, intersect with that disembodied understanding of faith and God? I am an evangelist for self-care. My starting point for care for the body is our creation in the image of God. God created humankind 
in God's image, and God declared the created human to be not just good, but very good. This body bears in it the vital breath of God. To honor the image of God is to honor God's creativity and God's very self. It is to recognize that we are blessed to bear in us something of the pattern of the divine. Our embodiment is therefore not something that divides us from God, but something that brings us closer to God. Our bodies are a bridge between heaven and earth. The next place I go are the two great commands. First iterated in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, then identified by no less an authority than Jesus Christ as the greatest of all commands in all three synoptic gospels. These are regarded by many as the scriptural foundation for Christian ethics. They command us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our, in Hebrew, all our throat, preachers, all our throat, and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. How are you going to love your neighbor if you're not loving yourself? Matthew says that on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. In Luke's gospel, Jesus illustrates can I have just a few extra minutes, Sally? Okay. <laughs> Jesus illustrates the love of neighbor as costly and lavish physical care. A man was stripped, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road. The Samaritan travel embodied love of neighbor. Love of neighbor by cleaning the wounds of the beaten man. In fact, he poured the wine that he probably wanted to drink onto those wounds to cleanse them. He oiled those wounds, applied a salve. He bandaged them. He let him ride on his own donkey, took him to a place of safety to receive rest and food, cared for him some more there, and then paid money for his future care. If we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, the first thing we got to do is love ourselves. And that love isn't just a feeling. It's lavish and costly physical care. There is one person on this whole planet who is responsible for your health and well-being. And if you want to know who that mystery person is, it's you. When I became an adult, I spent years waiting for someone to tell me to stop working, someone to cook me dinner and tell me to take a load off. God, help me. I was waiting for someone to treat me like a queen. And I finally figured out that that someone had to be me. If you've got wounds, and we've all got wounds, tend those wounds. Clean them. 
oil them, bandage them. It's okay to be vulnerable, but do not try to be bleeding all over your congregation. Get therapy, seek spiritual direction, find a general practitioner you trust, someone who treats you like a whole person. Put a team of people in place who are supporting you. Someone who can offer you a reality check and say, what did you do for yourself today? Preachers, take your Sabbath every week like your life depends on it because it does. So it's not on Sunday and it sure isn't on Saturday, but do not kid yourself. If on the seventh day, the world could keep on going without God lifting a finger, it can sure do fine without you. A big part of self-care is boundaries. Just say no, delegate. How great is it that Shauna and Isaiah are telling us that preaching isn't just your job, so don't hoard it. Recruit your partners in ministry and let them do what they also are called to do. And lastly, if you are struggling to love your body, and I think many of us struggle with that, and there's so much work for us to do as a church around this issue. God is not into body shaming, full stop. I'm just going to start by telling you that God already loves your body. God already loves your body. You know, sometimes I have a 17-year-old who's six foot two, and everyone thinks they're like 24. And sometimes I just look at this face, and I'm grinning from ear to ear, and I can't stop looking. And they say to me, what? <laughs> what? Mom, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I just adore you. You are my baby, and I just adore you. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to stop doing that right now. But God adores you. God loves you just like you are right now. You are beautiful, you are whole, and you are enough.